Genesis chapter 11. Uh, I am going to try to fill some of Mark's roles while he is gone. Singing will not be one of them. My sur- <laughs> oh, I see how it is. All right, cool. Never mind. I am going to yell at you today. That's fine. Genesis chapter 11. So where we find ourselves in the context of what's going on is... Uh, Again, remember the beginning, you've got perfect creation, then Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve, after eating the fruit of the garden, realize they're naked, and they're filled with shame, and they cover themselves. Then you get to the end of the flood, and Noah eats the fruit of his garden, gets drunk, winds up naked, exposing his shame to his family. So you almost have the, the mirror images happening in those sins. And from the time of Noah, humanity continues in this this downward spiral. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Amen? All right, so really what that shows us is something the Scripture is going to show us all the way throughout. As we study, as we learn, as we read, we're going to find that, that apart from the work of God on our behalf, we will accomplish nothing that will save us from our sinful futility. Nothing. So today we're going to see the foundation of that sinful Utility in Genesis chapter 11. Let me start reading. Verse 1 says this. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar, and they they settled there. So so literally what verse 1 says is the whole earth had one lip and one word. One lip and one word. What they're doing is they're speaking and communicating in the, the same language. They didn't have to take language studies in high school like many of us did. How many of you studied a foreign language in high school or college? Raise your hand real quick. All right. How many of you found it useful for where you are today? Raise your hand. Uh, (laughs) Perfect. I took three years of French because I'm not very smart. And, you know, the French are taking over the world, so I thought I'd learn their language. And so at this point, after three years of French, I can say, my name is Frank, mon nom est Franck. Or I can ask a very important question. Où est la discothèque? Where is the disco? I'm not going to demonstrate. I also know all the swear words, but that's for that's not for preaching. That's what happens when you take French in high school. These people all spoke same language. And they find themselves in the same place, which is different than what happens at the end of chapter 10, verse 32 the clans of Noah's sons, according to their family records in their nations, the nations on earth had spread out from these after the flood. So they had spread out all around the world, and now they're migrating east together. Now the story takes a crazy turn in verse 3. They said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt or bitumen for mortar. Crazy turn, they adopt this amazing technology called bricks. And their bricks were a little different than everybody else's because they oven-dried them instead of sun-dried them. You'll remember that from the book of Exodus, sun-drying the, the bricks. And they also didn't, uh, the, what they used was this bitumen, which is almost like an asphalt. So it's a lot stickier. And so when you would build with these bricks and that type of mastic, that mortar, then it, it would make your buildings way more waterproof and way more sturdy. And so they were way ahead of their time. Now look what they're doing with this incredible technology that they've discovered. Look at verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. 
Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So, so they have four things that they state, and we're going to revisit those in a little bit. But they say, okay, let's, let's build a city. Okay, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. A, a secure, place of security, a home, a place to live, that, that's a good thing. So let's build a city. Let's build a tower with its top in the sky. All right, it's a little obnoxious, a little obnoxious, but, you know, we all want to be achieving great things. We all want our names attached to things of accomplishment. So that's not a terrible thing. Let's make a name for ourselves. Uh-oh. That's not good. Let's stay put. So we don't have to scatter throughout the earth. That is in direct disobedience to God's clear command of chapter 9, verse 7, when God says, be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. So they begin building this tower as high as they can. This is an, an achievement of mankind that's going to be like none other. They're going to build it straight to the sky. And look at the comment that's made in verse 5. It's almost funny. The Lord came down to look over the city and the tower. Even with their amazing accomplishments and their incredible abilities, and the newest of technology, the highest they could build the tower, God still had to stoop down to look at their high tower like a daddy does to a two-year-old who's building a Lego tower. You'll never build something that big. Continuing, God stoops down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. And the Lord said, if they've begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. They stopped building the city. Therefore, it's called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. God steps in, confuses their language, and scatters them. All right. They're just building a tower. Why is this such a big deal? Actually, it's bigger than that. Like I said, you get to see the foundation of our sinful futility in their decision of verse 4. And there's really two problems that that come out of verse 4. The first is they say, and it's the first and the fourth thing that they say, we're going to build ourselves a city and we're going to stay put. So, so what the problem, the foundational problem here is they're finding security in their own comfort. They're finding security in their, their own comfort. Their unwillingness to spread out is, is, is super troubling. They've anchored in this place where they can find their security among each other, among people who speak the same language, of people who have the same thoughts, who, who people who, who, who talked, acted the same way they did. And they, they made it a point to be committed to live in that place, although it was in pure defiance to what God had commanded them to do. Their focus was anything but going. Their focus wasn't going. Their focus was completely on, on staying and doing what they wanted and what they were comfortable with. So what's the problem? I mean, they were unified, right? I mean, they were, they were in great unity. Isn't that what God wants? God wants a unified humanity, right? The problem is that this is a twisted unity. If they would unify around truth and around what is right, there's no telling what could be accomplished. But, as in Noah's day, everything they did constantly drifted towards, trended towards, gravitated towards their sin and their brokenness and their own futility. And God says, I'm going to save them from themselves. 
God's desire is never to replace diversity with uniformity or unanimity. And that's what you see here in, in, in Babel. Babel is, is just humanity's attempt to unify around their own security. They're, they're just trying to hold in common and rest in something that they find comfortable in a place where they can make their name great instead of finding their security in a God who loves them, a God who has given them a home, and a God who calls them by name. Their problem is our problem. Every single one of us. We drift towards a unity of uniformity because it's comfortable. It's natural. Um, So I, I went to a boarding high school and our, our chapel speaker, every year, would start the chapel by saying, if you're a new student here, I will be able to tell what type of person you are within the first two weeks. Because in the first two weeks, you will gravitate to the crowd that you are most comfortable with. And I already know the crowds. And so the, the jocks would end up, all, all the sports people, the, the giddy girls would end up with the giddy girls. It was weird, the big hair girls always end up with the big hair girls, too. That's a commentary on society somehow. I just haven't figured it out yet. You had the nerds with the nerds and the bookworms with the bookworms, and you you could see it happen, and every time the troublemakers would find their way to the other troublemakers. It's uncanny. It's amazing how it happens. But that's because we're all the same. We gravitate towards a Tower of Babel mentality, a Tower of Babel unity. We do that as a church. We do that as a church, and in so doing, we miss out on a facet of the gospel that is so beautiful and so redemptive and so life-giving, particularly to the outside world that's watching us. So as we fall in on ourselves and gravitate towards these relationships and turn our backs on people who are different than us, we miss an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel in ways that the rest of the world doesn't. We, we know, we celebrate, Ephesians 2 talks about it, we know and celebrate that, that God's own son, Jesus Christ, came into the world to bear our sin. And what he did in bearing our sin, I think Ephesians 2 paints this picture at the beginning, is he tore down the wall that we had over top of us, the ceiling, if you will, between us and God. And when Jesus Christ came and, and laid down his life for us and and, and, and took our punishment. He, he tore down the ceiling so that, so that we have access to God. But the rest of Ephesians 2 continues, says it doesn't end there. But what Jesus Christ did is he took two incredibly different groups of people. You have Gentile and you have Jew. You cannot find a different group of people. You can't find a people who despise each other more. And Paul says, now, you know what God did through Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross? Where two men stand... There's one. Because God tore down the wall between Jew and Gentile as well. No no more people that are Gentile. No more people that are are Jew. No, no. We are Christ's. And Ephesians 3, verse 10, is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. It says, through the, 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 the beautiful, unifying work of Jesus Christ, as Jew and Gentile come into one place, what ends up happening, a a byproduct of that event, is that the multifaceted wisdom of God is on display for all the world to see. When people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, languages, thought patterns, experiences come into the same place and worship through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the watching world says, what? What? 
It's impossible. You can't do that apart from Jesus Christ. And so on full display is this beautiful, multifaceted wisdom that is God and God's alone. God is calling us to celebrate not our comfort, not our preferences. He's calling us to celebrate that Jesus Christ brought a people of every tongue, tribe, nation, people, kindred, background, hair color, occupation, stance on masks, on vaccinations, and he brought them together through his finished work on the Jesus Christ, submitted to his authority. Not anything else. The unity that's found at the Tower of Babel is based on themselves. God has called us to something far bigger. Just like Acts 1. You know the story is Jesus standing on the top of the mountain with his disciples. He says to them, now you go. You go. You'll have power, but you go. And I'm probably an old joke now because I do it all the time, but I say, he's gone, and the disciples are like, hey, where did he go? What are we supposed to do? And the angel says, this is Frank's translation, you morons. He literally just told you to go. He's coming back. So you better get to work. And you know what they did? Those disciples, upon hearing the command of Jesus to go, watching him ascend into heaven, having the angels go, go. And they're like, okay. And they stay until chapter 8 of Acts. And then they scatter. Do you know why they scattered in chapter 8? Not because they were like, we should obey. They scattered because persecution came. They scattered because difficulty came crashing down in their very comfortable lives. Friends, what did you do in the past year? See, I believe that what's inside of you will come out of you when you are squeezed. You were squeezed. You remain being squeezed. What have you done in the past year? See, the beautiful thing of Acts 8 is you got to see in the lives of believers what was really in them. When the persecution came, they're like, we're out of here. And as they went, they spread the gospel. So by the time you, you, you flip forward a couple of chapters, the church is growing exponentially. People are believing in Jesus Christ exponentially because as they went, they were oozing what was inside of them. What have you oozed over the past year? What, what, what has come out of you? Did you just double down and decide to remain comfortable? What will you do now? See, the foundation of our sinful futility is that we like our comfort far more than we like obeying what God has called us to. What will you do with that? I think the second foundation we see of our sinful futility is found in the middle two items of verse 4. So not only did they say, let us build ourselves a city and let's stay, but in the middle they said, let's build a tower that reaches into the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. Those two go together. The other foundation of our sinful futility is, is our pride, our arrogance, Let's build a tower that makes much of us. <laughs> all right, so all right, maybe it's just me, and if that's the case, okay. We, I struggle. I'll say we all to make me feel better. How's that? 
We all struggle with that. We hate disappointing people. We, we all love to be praised. We love to be told how needed we are. We love to be told how great we are. We love to be told what we've accomplished. We want people to look at us and tell us, oh, everything you've done, what a tower. That thing's amazing. I, I promise you, if I am not walking with Christ, I will one-up you every time you speak. I will find a story that is better than yours because I am at heart a glory thief. I don't want to share it with you. I want it for myself. And I'll be honest with you, that makes for an obnoxious friend, a really annoying fellow employee. But when it comes to God, it's downright damning. Because the foundation of our sin is our pride. That's what... I want in my own strength so I get the glory. So do you struggle with pride? You you, you can do a lot of good things in life and still be consumed with your pride. You, you, You can build towers. You can get good grades. You can build a business from from scratch. You can be religious. You can be a good husband. You can be a, a strong wife. You can be a great parent. It'd be a solid pastor. When you do that all in your own strength, with an eye on what it, what's in it for you, to make your name great, then you're just as arrogant and sinful as the people who are building the Tower of Babel. In fact, you are just as arrogant and sinful as Lucifer himself. I'm not going to take the time to go to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, but I'd encourage you this afternoon, just, just flip through those, those chapters. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And what you find is the story of the fall of Lucifer. And what you hear coming out of his mouth is, what I want in my strength so I get the glory. I will ascend. I will sit on my throne. I will take your place, God. All right, Frank, I don't want to be like Satan. Well, good. That, that, that's, that's the first step. Thank you. I'm glad. Somebody's like, ooh, that's what I want. We have a whole set of different problems. So. But it, it gets a little difficult because we don't even know our own hearts. You know that, right? As, be, as well as you think you know, you don't know your own heart. So how can I tell if I'm doing these things with the, the right motives? Well, I can tell you one sign. C.S. Lewis tells us this, that He believes there's one sign that can show us that you are not doing it with the right motive. An evidence of pride in your life is jealousy. Jealousy, you know why? Because pride is competitive by nature. So so it's the guys talking about how they used to play basketball back in high school. No, I hit the game winning shot. And then you go back and look like, dude, you sat on the bench. Pride doesn't mean I need to be smart. It doesn't mean I I need to be fast or strong or even good. Pride says I just need to be smarter than you, faster than you, smarter than you, better than you. So when a coworker gets a promotion you might have been interested in, does that fire you up? 
Does a, does a mom celebrating the achievement of one of her children just irk you? Does a, another student getting the award at the end of the year make you angry? Jealousy is a sure sign that you are marked by pride. Why? Because your tower is falling. You've built this thing, this idea, this concept, this whole understanding that this is my security, and you've deceived yourself into thinking that that's what's going to get you the recognition. That's what's going to get you the acceptance. That's what's going to give you your, your standing. That's what's going to win the day. This is what's going to finally make you something because you've done all of these things. You have built your tower, and now, alas, ha-ha, I've arrived. And then all of a sudden, somebody else builds a bigger tower. It's the, uh, the story, the prodigal son with the older brother. You, you know the story, just real quick, you know the, the basic concept of the story is the younger brother comes to his, his daddy and says, give me what is coming to me, I want my inheritance. And then he goes and he leaves and treats dad as if he was dead and he spends all of the finances and, and just reckless living, insane living, and just, just throwing money away to the place where he ends up living in a pig pen, eating what the pigs are eating in order to stay alive, in order to sustain his strength. And then finally he comes to his senses and says, my dad's servants live better than this. I'm going home. And the whole way there, he rehearses that, that speech in his head, I have sinned against heaven and against you, Father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I just want to be one of your servants. And as he gets close, dad sees him coming in that beautiful, heart-rending picture, runs off the porch of the house, hightails it towards his boy, falls on him with hugs and kisses, and is weeping and is crying. He's like, my son who is lost is found. Let's, let's put the good robe on him. Let's, let's put my ring on him. Let's kill the fatted calf and let's party. And so the party ensues, and it and it says this, the older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. I want to stop there. That's a good party when you hear dancing. <laughs> so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him. Your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, and he didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But the older brother replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours comes, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Oh, his tower fell down. See, I have acceptance in my father's eyes because I have never disobeyed you. I've only ever done what you wanted. I never spent all your money on riotous living. I did, I did everything you've called me to. I am a son who is worthy to be called your son, and you didn't even give me a goat. And you give him prime rib? See, there's the jealousy. He built a tower. He created a scorecard. He, he assumed that he would gain security, acceptance, and belonging in his daddy's eyes by 
following the script, and yet daddy didn't play the same game, and the boy was shaken. If you have built your tower on yourself, I assure you your tower is going to fall down. If you built the thing to give you what only God can give you, and you're trying to make that substitution, you are in for a collapse like the older brother. I'm going to try not to steal next week's message. I promise. God, God built your tower for you. And he did it in an incredibly unusual way. He chooses the opposite of human strength. He chooses a weak, impotent, frail, old man named Abram. And he says, Abram, I'm going to give you the security you're looking for, a more permanent thing than anything you could possibly build. I'm going to give you significance. You are going to have a role in blessing the entire world. Abram, I'm going to make your name great. All of these families that have scattered with their new languages are going to be reunited through what I build through you. You fast forward to Acts chapter 2, and this thing happens. Peter stands before multitudes from every possible nation, all languages, and he begins to preach about the Messiah, God's son, the descendant of Abram, Jesus Christ, who died an undeserved death, was buried and rose again from the dead. And as he brought the first gospel message, you know what happened? God moved. And the people no longer found their languages a barrier to understanding the good news. And this great movement of the gospel began, and it continues to this day, unifying men and women, boys and girls, around the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, until one day, the scattered nations of the earth aren't speaking one language around a tower that they built, bragging about their ability. The nations of the earth, with their multiplicity of languages, gather around God. They proclaim his wisdom, his power, his glory. We see this in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked, there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. The tower that God builds through his man, Abram, will dwarf any tower you build. What tower are you standing around? What tower are you standing around? We look forward to that day when we join our voices with all the voices of the world. I've told you this story before, but it's, it's, it's impactful to me. We were in China, a house church sitting around just crammed, definitely not social distance, I'll tell you that. We were crammed in this little apartment, was secretly meeting, which I don't know how they pull off because they don't sing like they're trying to hide. We, we would do well to learn that lesson. And as they are singing at the top of their lungs, somebody gets the idea for the Chinese believers, they start singing Amazing Grace in Chinese, and you recognize the tune, you certainly don't recognize the language, and it's just like, that's really cool. And then they're like, you, 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 so us... Oh, it was a group of college kids. It was rough because I was leading it. 
And we sing Amazing Grace to them, and it's like, okay, hey. And we're like, mm. and they're like, oh, that was beautiful. Let's sing it together. I'm like, sure, why not? And as we're singing it, I'm like, this sounds crazy. Until this little, ah, oh, my older sister, little Chinese lady, she's probably not that tall, probably like that, but she felt like And she just reached over and grabbed my arm and looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, like heaven. That's the tower I want to be around. Forget this building. For, for, forget, I'm not going anywhere. Forget Uniontown. It's bigger than that. Isn't it? So what tower are you around? Will you lift your voices like those Chinese believers who are hiding? Will you lift your voices to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What tower are you around? Let's pray. Father. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of our foolishness. Forgive us. Forgive us of our, our comfort-seeking selves. God, I pray you would open our eyes to the things that you have for us, which are far greater than anything we could imagine or think. We, we pray that you would open our eyes to the world around us that is so different than us and yet, and yet so wonderful in your eyes. I pray pray you would move us out of our comfort zones. I pray that as we consider what we've done in the last year, as we consider what tower we're putting our energy and effort in, that, that Father, you would give us humble and moldable hearts. Father, I pray that we would repent. That we would repent and remember what it's really about. God, I ask that you would take our offering to you in worship, in singing, in service, in giving and make it acceptable in your sight. You're the only one who deserves that gift. So Father, may we give it with great generosity. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.